Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast endeavors to explore all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show joins the series that places Hemingway alongside one of his artistic contemporaries. Specifically, we will investigate the friendship between Ernest Hemingway and John Dos Passos and discuss their associations, interactions, and their legacies. To do this properly, we turn to the man who wrote the book, James McGrath Morris. James is a former teacher, journalist, and the award-winning author of several books, including Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, The First Lady of the Black Press, and Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print, and Power. He is also the author of The Ambulance Drivers, Hemingway, Dos Passos, and A Friendship Made and Lost in War, a fascinating chronicle of the Hemingway-Dos Passos relationship. Jamie, welcome to One True Podcast. Glad to be with you. Well, let's start by talking about the end of your book, where you issued a research challenge to uh, contemporary scholars, and what was the subsequent fallout and exciting developments from that challenge? Well, as by way of background, as a historian and biographer, I've always been upset by the fact that a lot of people go nameless in history. When I was writing a book about Pulitzer, there was a fire at the house, and the press would describe things like, Mr. and Mrs. Pulitzer survived, but three Irish maids perished in the blaze. And I think not naming the victims of the past is, is a, an important issue for historians. Well, Hemingway, as your listeners know, was famously wounded in the trenches in Italy towards the close of World War I or the Great War. And he lived because when the mortar fell that wounded him, it was an Italian soldier standing between him and the blast. And the soldier didn't, it was unintentionally doing so, but he saved Hemingway's life by taking the blunt of the blast. And Hemingway famously got his 267 mortar pieces of fragments and, uh, of metal, et cetera, and survived and had his love affair and went on to become one of the great writers of the 20th century. There's a plaque at the Piave River in Italy that says this is the spot that Hemingway was wounded, but makes no mention of the soldier. And all the biographies just refer to him as an Italian soldier. And this bugged me. So at the end of the book, I had an, a call in which I explained my, my feelings about naming, particularly soldiers. I think not naming them is like leaving them behind. And I was able, with my own research, to assemble a list of, I think, 18 men who would, would one of them would have been that soldier. I did that with the help of an Italian researcher where we were able to use Italian war records and come up with this list that on that night, these 18 deaths occurred within the proximity of that river. But I couldn't afford to go to Italy, and my Italian skills are non-existent. And also, it's, Italian research is a world of its own, um, entirely different than any other part of the world. So I issued this call. I also wrote a piece on, the, on, uh, on a History Network page about this. And this is the delight of the Internet. Uh, a man in Italy, a historian in Italy, 
uh, wrote to me and said um, that uh, that he uh, was using my research and believed he was able to uh, pinpoint um, that 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 uh, person. And this, the name of this historian is I might beg my uh, indulge me with my Italian Marino Perasinotto, uh, and he was able to identify the uh, the, the soldier because he was able to get into the specific records of who died on that night and where they died. And so, uh, in, gosh, what was it, May or something of last year, I published an article in the Washington Post, which went viral in Italy, uh, naming the soldier's name. Yes, and so this article in the Washington Post is, uh, what a beautiful first sentence. He may be one of the most important figures in the history of 20th century literature, yet he never published a word. And that is your reference to this fellow, uh, Fedele Temperini of Montalcino, who is, who is this uh, soldier who's finally named. And so this is uh, the exciting thing about this, obviously, is that your book isn't just a wealth of information, but it becomes an, uh, it was actually a noble crusade to unearth this, to exhume this man's legacy. Yeah. I mean, this is an important thing. I mean, biography tends to, you know, we have, what, 15 to 30 biographies of Hemingway, um, at least. And there's this, the biographies tend to be of famous, important men. They tend to be of the generals, not of the soldiers. They tend to be of the presidents, not the people put in office. And I think that trend is changing now. The book I wrote, I know we're getting off topic, but briefly, the book I wrote about Ethel Payne, she was a black civil rights reporter who was ignored by mainstream publishing for years. And the biography has this ability, perhaps, to give people a a chance to be in the limelight uh, for what they did, not for who they were. And that's why it's important that we know Fideli Temperini's name, and perhaps his name will be added to the monument along the Piave River. Well, let's just, just one more issue about this is you've named Temperini. Uh, what is it about Italian research laws that prohibit us learning more about him, having a, a little biography of his own? They have an enormous privacy rules, very strict privacy rules, whereas I can you know, I can walk into the National Archives and start digging into your family's roots using census records and come up with kinds of stuff. That's basically against the law in Italy. It's much tighter, and you have to have family permission. And so uh, one of the surprising things is that um, after the article went viral in Italy, the mayor of his hometown did announce some of the stuff they knew about him. Um, I don't think mayors get prosecuted in Italy. And um, it turns out the family all died out, so there are no descendants, which is why I think he felt free to do that. Uh, the craft of the Temperinis died in 1930. And I was, I was secretly hoping there would be some descendant who would suddenly learn of the importance of his ancestor. So that, wasn't, that didn't happen. Sure. But it's really an act of, of great sensitivity to wonder about the person next to Hemingway. Uh, it's just now, sometimes in Hemingway's career, he acknowledges that, hey, he just was in the right place at the right time. If he was just a, little, a few feet over, it would have been him and not the other guy. But giving him the name really does humanize him. So I, you know, big tip of the hat for you for that for that discovery. Um, so let's circle circle back around. We got into a little bit of your history. How did you come to Hemingway and Dos Passos as as a uh, as a topic that was worthy of your investigation? Well, it, it was like many things um, 
the starting point is often very distant from the finishing line. I was interested in doing something about the Great War. We were coming up on the centennial of the war, and I think that Americans and uh, not Europeans, but Americans tend to misunderstand what the war was all about. Uh, I used to teach high school, and I often thought the kids thought World War One and World War Two were two wars just separated by numbers. Um, but World War Two was the needless slaughter of millions of people. Um, we weren't ending fascism. We weren't liberating uh, Holocaust camps. It was because the leaders were unable to figure out how to stop this, that this bloodshed occurred. And it was a defining moment for a whole generation of Americans, much like if you're my age, the Vietnam War was a defining mo moment. So I was, I was in the World War I world searching for a story. And I knew about the volunteer ambulance drivers as a man who wrote a remarkable book. And I won't have the right title entirely, but it's something like Gentlemen Volunteers. And it's a book about all of the different volunteers who are an extraordinary array of people, writers, artists, et cetera. And I'll explain later if you're interested how they became volunteers because it relates to Hemingway and Dos Passos. Um, and so I thought there might be a story in that, particularly when I noticed that both Hemingway and Dos Passos have been volunteer ambulance drivers. But that was, you know, a thread of a story. What I, as I dug in, I discovered that they actually forged a remarkable friendship that lasted until 1937. Uh, and the basis of that friendship was their common experience in, in the Great War. Much like if you meet World War II veterans, the few who are still alive, or Vietnam veterans or Iraqi war veterans, they have a bond between them that is different than, than a bond between a civilian and a non, you know, and a veteran. And um, so I knew there was something in that. And so I set off to do the story, and it ended up turning out to be, uh, sometimes this happens, better than the proposal in the sense that, um, I don't use this word in the book, so don't panic, but it really is like a bromance. I mean, these guys <laughs> were infatuated with each other. They read each other's works. Um, the little side stories, Dos Passos tends to be very important in shaping Hemingway's work. Um, and it was an animated, interesting friendship with very conflicting views as to the role of literature, very conflicting views as to the war, role of war and politics. Um, and then it ends in, this, in, in a, not a physical violence, but a verbal violence uh, in a very sad way. So it, from a storytelling point of view, all I had to do was hold on and type madly, and it, there was bound to be a book. And so in the, in the research and proposal for the book, did you have a particular affinity for Hemingway and or Dos Passos? Well, like most people, Hemingway did something to me. Um, you know, like as a kid reading uh, Old Man and the Sea, I suddenly thought, wow, books are interesting. Um, I've had a little bit of an aversion to Hemingway. In part, it's not his fault. But like Picasso or like uh, Stravinsky or like uh, Dashiell Hammett, they've been so imitated that when you look at the original, it looks like an imitation. You know, we have games where we pretend to be Hemingway. Right. And all that kind of so in some ways, the book helped me appreciate Hemingway's skill as a writer in a way that I had never before done. Um, I liked Dos Passos better to start with, mostly because of my politics. I kind of thought he was an underappreciated good guy of the early 20th century. Um, but I didn't like Dos Passos late in life because he switched sides and went to the right wing. 
Um, so the book did two things for me. One, I came to have a cleaner, keener, sorry, keener sense of Hemingway's earth-shattering talent that changed writing, and a, a sympathetic understanding as to why one of my heroes of the left became a soldier of the right, and I don't hold it against him. That's a, that's a great description. Uh, maybe the w- one of the things I really admire about your book is how you uh, characterize Hemingway and Dos Passos as being really entering into World War I in a different, I mean, they did have that as similarities, but they're different people and with different attitudes, aren't they, as they, as they volunteer for World War I? Yeah, and there's an age difference and there's a schooling difference. I mean, Dos Passos is 21. He's been at Harvard. Harvard was a hotbed of radicalism back then. John Reed had graduated and there were a lot of Marxists and, and a sense that, you know, I'm, people are going to laugh when they hear this, but that poetry could change the world, you know, this kind of enthusiasm. And Dos Passos felt he could not miss out on witnessing what I was describing as the event, uh, defining event of their generation. So he wanted to go there, but he didn't want to fight because he opposed it. And that's why the ambulance drivers uh, were a wonderful opportunity for him. And um, uh, the ambulance drivers uh, were volunteer drivers that worked uh, for the Red Cross and and, uh, and for other organizations, and they were recruited in the United States. Well, among the qualities you needed is you needed money because you're going to have to pay your way to Paris. It might be a good idea if you spoke French because you're going to be working with French soldiers, um, and you need to know how to drive an automobile. Well, I have just described to you the upper class of the United States. A kid at Harvard or Yale had money, knew how to speak French, and knew how to drive cars because poor people certainly didn't. They didn't have cars. So the recruits came from Harvard, Princeton, all of these places. So that's why that book about ambulance drivers is called Gentlemen Volunteers. Because it was a group of uh, do-gooders from wealth who, who, when they bought themselves a suit, they bought the very best. So Dos Passos went off and, and landed in France and saw some of the worst fighting in Verdun. Not as bad as 17, but it was almost as bad. He was already predisposed against this war, and he came to be um, just a virulent pacifist about the war. And he decided that he could, he could write literature uh, to try to end the war. So what I, the, the comparison I give is that any good Marxist knows that Marx once said, you know, philosophers have hitherto interpreted the world. The point is to change it. Dos Passos viewed writing as a way of changing the world rather than just representing it. So his first two attempts at writing are these anti-war books, one of which was awful and one of which was very good. And, um, and Hemingway, by contrast, was much more of an adventure seeker. You know, he'd left home, he'd gone to Kansas City to work as a reporter, and he joined up the Ambulance Corps as his only means as the war is closing to get to the war. And, um, he, you know, he loved to, if he could, to have a gun on his side. I mean, they weren't issued guns, but he, he had a... Uh, fascination with weaponry. And when he came back, he had pictures taken himself with a pistol on the field in his uniform. Mm. And most people who know the war say, well, wait a second, they weren't issued police. <laughs> That's what you're doing. So he had a kind of, um, uh, wireistic is an unfair characterization, but a, he wanted to see it. He wanted to feel it. He wanted to taste it. And, uh, and the reaction uh, in my uh, one episode in my book, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, 
But shortly after he lands, there's a munitions factory that has blown up. And he and another uh, Red Cross volunteer are assigned to go and basically collect the body parts and put them back together so they could be buried. And it's gruesome work. I mean, you know, he describes it as bits of hair and arms on the fence and things like that. Well, if it had been Dos Passos, Dos Passos would have been taking notes to try to describe the horror of war to make people puke and be opposed to the war. Hemingway gets back to the group and he writes postcards to friends about, I've seen the war and oh boy, I'm glad to be part of it. And, and he is only 18. He's still very much an adolescent and he doesn't have that he doesn't have a sense of loss. I don't know all the elements, but the point is that it's a great adventure for him. As your book develops and as you continue tracing, let me, now that we're on Hemingway, if we're, if you're going to trace Hemingway through his subsequent wars, did this kind of, I mean, the way you're sounding, it sounds naive or even innocent or immature. Does this kind of attitude persist in his subsequent wars? There's a naivete when he's young about the sophistication of the world, but I'm not sure it's uh, that he's um, uh, not mature about it. I think he's, I think he's an adventure seeker who's fascinated by death. Um, uh, you know, as hunting with his dad as a kid and picking up dead birds to the, his fascination with bullfighting. I mean, one to me, I, I mean, I have to admit, I think bullfighting is a cruel, awful sport. And I, I like boxing. I just don't share Norman Mailer's appreciation of boxing or Hemingway's appreciation of, of bullfighting. But as a writer, I have to give them their due. And when he wrote that book about bullfighting shortly after World War I, um, when he was between books, he writes about it's the only place where you can see death absent of a war. Right. Um, he's he's fascinated by death, so I think proximity to death is not uncommon. I think the the other comparison is the is the draw as a newspaper correspondent to be in a war zone, um, or any kind. I should say TV correspondents, day radio correspondents. That's where you make your medal. That's where you're known. You know, um, uh, to think of all the young intellectuals like Haberstam or Fitzgerald who rushed to Vietnam at some risk to their lives to write about it. There's an adrenaline high that comes with it. And Dos Passos had such an aversion to war that I don't think he got that adrenaline high. And Hemingway certainly did. Even as you're explaining this now and the way that I read your book, um, I I'm wondering about the challenge of having to write what amounts to a dual biography or let's say the biography of a friendship. And when you do that, uh, is there is it inevitable that one person emerges as as a good guy and one person as a bad guy, or do you have to show the balance on both sides? Did you emerge uh, partial to one or the other? It's a good question. Um, let me answer first with a good guy, bad guy. Um, my wife, who did not like Hemingway, liked him a lot better after the book and did not like Dos Passos. Hmm. I think I was more favorable to Dos Passos than I was to Hemingway. So I may have overcompensated uh, doing that. I don't know. The friendship ended up being the best part of the book because what I ended up realizing is that the friendship was a character in the sense that if this was a novel as opposed to a nonfiction work, there were three characters, Hemingway, Dos Passos, and the friendship. So I tried to make the friendship the narrative thread that connected it and specifically if they'd been apart for several years, the chapter opens when they're together 
and then I use a flashback to fill in the, the, the missing years or missing time. And, and so I always viewed the friendship as the third character in the book, the wives and, uh, of Hemingway and, and Dos Passos as, as actually outside that circle. They, they, they're, um, they have uh, a stage presence, but the characters of the book are Hemingway, Dos Passos, and the friendship, and the friendship is what tied the book together. There are times when you're saying uh, sarcasm was Hemingway's weapon of choice, and uh, it seems like you're, you're you don't always condone the way Hemingway treated people. No, I don't condone it, but I I was trained in a different way. Um, when I wrote about Joseph Pulitzer, he was one of the most awful people to be around, cruel, nasty, just really unpleasant. But he was tormented by devils. That really helped prepare me to understand Hemingway. Hemingway's cruelty to his friends and the way he he shoved everyone who loved him aside um, wasn't his doing. It, it had to do with his mental makeup. It's it's no different than somebody who a teenager who cuts himself or somebody who you know it's it's a it's it's not purposeful. It's a different kind of cruelty. I mean, when you were in school and I was in school, you knew bullies who walked across the street to squish a uh, a bug out of just pure evil. Hemingway did that kind of stuff with his friends, but it wasn't out of evil. It was something deeply wrong in him, which may be why he was such a creative genius. He may have had something that was off balance. But I mean, poor guy. I mean, his mother sends him the gun that his father used to kill himself. Um, I mean, there are just all these awful things in raising this child that, that, uh, that I'm surprised Hemingway came out the way he did. Any discussion of the Dos Passos Hemingway friendship in your book does this so well, uh, focuses on, let's say, the two crises of their relationship. Uh, one is the death of uh, Dos Passos' wife, and the other is the Jose Robles uh, controversy that essentially uh, destroyed their friendship. And maybe we can talk about those two things. How do you uh, analyze those two things? And is there a clear right and wrong, or do you see both people's sides to it? Well, Hemingway shows his, um, again, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but there are two sides to Hemingway. And when Katie Dos Passos is killed in this awful car accident, that's Dos Passos' fault. I mean, fault in the sense he was at the wheel and was blinded by the sun and ran into the end of the truck and it's gruesome. She's decapitated and she's the great love of her, of his life. Now, um, the audience may not recognize uh, Katie Smith's maiden name, but uh, she was a woman that Hemingway either adored, may have had a relationship with, but of one of his early models of a woman, um, and also introduced Pauline and um, uh, and others to Hemingway's world. Um, and so she was an important figure for Hemingway himself. Um, and and so he knew her. He knew her longer than he known Dos Passos. So he, their friendship. Uh, Hemingway and Dos Passos' friendship had come to an awful end already by this point. This is years later when the accident occurs. Hemingway writes a very nice note to Dos Passos uh, about this, but he immediately writes another note to somebody else. And again, I'm paraphrasing because I'm not on the stand and I'm not quoting from my book. <laughs> he writes a note to something like, you know, the bastard killed my girlfriend right. or happened to my girlfriend. I think that's Hemingway's need to project a kind of public image to his friends. I mean, Hemingway, to my mind, is the uh, one of the earliest 
writers to understand the media and to make a media figure out of himself. When he gets off the ship after World War I, as interviewed by those yellow newspapers in New York, he's aware of the power of the press and begins shaping a story about himself that's untrue. And later, when he writes for Esquire and writes this manly kind of stuff, he's creating a public persona that helps him as a writer in terms of sales, but it's not the true Hemingway. Anyone who begins to scratch the surface learns that he's a very much more complex and less macho guy than he let being. So I think when he snaps after Katie's death, it's a, it's a form of grief, it's a form of yelling, and it's a form of presenting himself as this tough bully type guy. But you're saying that deep, that deep down, the, the authentic emotion was one of greater empathy. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think he authentically was deeply saddened. But, you know, it, um, I mean, I, I grew up, luckily, in a world where it was a little more permissible to cry. But, you know, Hemingway was one of these guys who was a guy who thought he was a guy's guy. And anything like that would be a sign of weakness. Okay. Uh, and also the Robles affair. Now, again, the, the scholars in your audience, because I wrote this book a little while ago, and I'm not going to have every date and thing wrong, right, but... Robles was a man that Dos Passos had met early on when he went to Spain. And, you know, Dos Passos, pardon the term, discovered Spain in the sense before Hemingway did. Now, Spanish people knew where they were, the world knew where, but I meant fascination with Spain, which was one of the little peas underneath the mattress of their friendship that bugged Hemingway was Hemingway, when he got something, he really wanted to own it. So it was sort of irritating to him that Dos Passos had actually been in Spain and loved it more than he did before he got there. So Spain was a very important thing to these two men. And, of course, the Spanish Civil War activated all liberal and left-wing people in the United States to try to prevent Franco from coming to power. And, and it was a proxy war for the beginning of World War II. Up until this point, Hemingway had re- remained very apolitical. He didn't join causes. He, he uh, When Sacco and Vanzetti trial occurred, you know, he stayed aloof from it, whereas Dos Passos was organizing writers to protest it. And it, it wasn't until this hurricane that occurred in which all these WPA volunteers died that Hemingway's activism was was sort of pumped up. So these two guys, Hemingway and Dos Passos, go to Spain to film a what they would like to call a documentary, but it's basically a propaganda film. And, um, and Hemingway has now come over to the Dos Passos view of becoming an activist and a, uh, you know, pushing for social change and using your writing to do so. So you think this would be great for the friendship? Well, except for one problem. When uh, Dos Passos had been young and in Spain, he'd become friends with Robles, uh, who was a teenager the same age, who later went on to Johns Hopkins and became quite an influential professor and writer and translator, who translated all of Dos Passos' books into Spanish. Well, he'd been killed in the beginning of the Spanish uh, Civil War. Um, and as Dos Passos was there, he kept digging, trying to find out what it was, how it, why, what were the circumstances of his death. Well, Hemingway wanted to stop this, particularly Martha Gelborn, who was with her, because it could reflect badly on the Republican government if it turns out they were involved. And so Hemingway's at the stage of saying, wait a second, I've come over to be like you, and here you are criticizing me for all these things um, after I've now come to be like you. And it turns out that Robles was killed by communists um, who were supporting the Republican cause. So it could be even more embarrassing for the Republicans. And, and Dos Passos 
felt deeply wounded by this because he had been a fellow traveler all throughout the 30s, and in fact, probably once a party member. And he had became he was becoming disillusioned with Stalin. And when he discovered that his best friend was summarily executed with no basis uh, mm. for kind of punishment, he lost his belief in the left wing and the left causes. And he came to believe that that there is no end in politics, that politics itself is not, it's no means to an end that you can just get rid of the means and get to a good end. That politics is the end itself and how politics are waged is more important than the goal, which is why I helped him move to the right later. So their friendship founders over this one incidence over the death of Robles. And it's a cataclysmic, vicious ending in which Hemingway promises to crush Dos Passos in, in the world and the world of literature, and, and they go their separate ways. It's very sad. Yeah, Hemingway's reaction was absolutely outsized, right? Uh, just a, a vicious response to Dos Passos's well, He comes stance. to the press station embarrassed to see him off to make sure he lets him know this threat that, you know, yeah. they'll never publish again, no one will pay attention to you again, et cetera, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm also I'm also curious about in, in the aftermath of your book. Uh, I'll just say what one thing that your book did for me was I was inspired to read uh, to finish the USA trilogy, which I had never I had never finished. And and in the in the reader in your readership, uh, do you find that people you know, they're saying, well, I know a lot about Hemingway, but I'm learning about Dos Passos or or vice versa? It doesn't seem like people really read Dos Passos very much yeah. these days. People do not read Dos Passos anymore. Dos Passos' trilogy is very much like you go into an art museum and you see this massive painting and you think, wow, those are amazing, unusual techniques. I, I know it changed the world of art, but do I want it above my sofa at home? <laughs> no. Um, Hemingway's, Hemingway won the war of literature in part because he's an enormously gifted storyteller. Um, Dos Passos wasn't a storyteller in the traditional sense. So his trilogy is a remarkable work, but the amount of knowledge you have to have in order to read it, understand it, first of all, precludes most common readers today. And it's quite inaccessible. I mean, it's a lot of work to do. Um, one of my favorite all-time books is Moby Dick, and people roll their eyes when they hear that. But if you really get involved in the book, it turns out to be incredibly rewarding the trilogy is somewhat that way, but it's still hard going. You, you, you don't get educated quickly enough as you read the book, whereas um, Melville educates you as to the ways of the whale rather rapidly. Yeah. So I think, I think he'll lose in that sense. You know, when they compile lists of the most significant writers of the 20th century, Dos Passos always gets on it. But if you compile lists of who's being read, um, he's never on those lists anymore. None of his books are. Yeah, I don't know if you have the same experience. I read, uh, you know, so I've read fourteen hundred pages of the USA trilogy. I'm not sure I could name a single character. Yeah, yeah, that's thank you. That's an exactly good way to put it. Whereas, you know, you, you read another book, uh, and you years later you can still remember the character. Sure, I remember Ahab, uh, but I don't remember. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what you were saying in the early, you made a brief reference this, uh, earlier in our conversation is you said that you think that some of some of Dos Passos's techniques of compression might have lent themselves to Hemingway's uh, later experimentation in the same form. Yeah, I, I guess I want to be careful because Hemingway is really a creation of his own and Gertrude Stein and others. But the fact that Dos Passos and Hemingway sat down and had shop talk all the time 
they were both trying to do the same thing. They ended up with different results, which is that they felt that the literary means of expression that existed at the beginning of the Great War, the Edith Whartons of this world, were were dated and could no longer be used, and they needed to find a new way to express themselves. And that's what that's what created their their writing. And they so they compared notes to the short sentence, the lack of adjectives, adverbs, the pacing, all the things that most casual readers know about Hemingway. They were both doing it and both doing it successfully. Um, and so one of the comparisons I sometimes try to help people see about Hemingway is Hemingway fractured the world of writing with The Sun Also Rises. Um, and the world could never be written the same way after that book appeared. Well, Picasso did the same thing with painting, but the, the Cubists were a large group. Picasso is the most famous member of that. And so I think the same thing was occurring with writing, and Dos Passos is in that second tier. But they were very much on the same trail, the same track of, of trying to make writing relevant to a post uh, World War One. It was a apocalyptic, a post-apocalyptic death scene, you know, where people, men, women were slaughtered in, in an extent that we'd never been able to do before, and they felt worthless and, and inadequate. So that's why they were both striving to do this. Um, and there are some moments. I have one Dos Passos. I was introduced somewhere where someone dug through Dos Passos and found these wonderful sentences and read them out loud, and everybody in the audience thought they were Hemingway. Yeah. Um, but they were, but they were very different. The, the, again, their differences. I mean, think when Sun Also Rises came out, Dos Passos basically said, "Damn you, uh, Hemingway! It's just so good." But he also said, "Damn you! Why did you write about such miserable, useless people?" You know, whereas Dos Passos wanted to write about meaty people who went to war, or factory workers, bus drivers. You know, the real people of the world, as opposed to these kind of Parisian dilettantes. Yeah, and in the USA trilogy, Manhattan Transfer, you had a lot of uh, economics oh, yeah. of war as opposed to the emotions. Of well, that's, war. yeah, and that's, but Dos Passos thought war had an economic basis. Yeah, of course. You know, in Manhattan Transfer, I remember there's a couple scenes where they're, they're Hemingway like in the tactile description of the rain coming down and the shimmering waters and things like that. And those two were just, you know, Think of the kind of shop talk these two guys had, um, and they read together. And they and Hemingway, who you know waited for the world to to review his books, wrote confessed at least twice to his editor that none of that mattered until Dos Passos entered his review. You know, they so wanted each other's approval. Well, in the spirit of one true podcast, one of the things that we want to ask uh, all of our guests is what is your one true sentence of Hemingway and why? Um, my one true sentence is the one at the beginning of uh, Farewell to Arms about the dust on the trees, and it's a paragraph long. And so it's uh, it's the longest sentence Hemingway wrote. <laughs> right. But that's the right. one I think represents his enormous skill of breaking every rule, and, and no reader can get by that paragraph without pausing and thinking maybe I should look at it one more time. That's that's a that is a great one. What do you think is the best novel Hemingway ever wrote? I'm trying to be honest by um, by not having spent days reflecting on this. Um, for me, it is um, probably for whom the bells toll. Mm. But again, you see, I think the thing about Hemingway and more than Dos Passos is that Hemingway connected emotionally with people, which is why you could have a barroom brawl over his best book. 
if you opened up all his books, I might be convinced by the end of the evening that, no, that's not his best book. But it's the emotionality that remains with you years later. It's very much like, um, it's almost like literary dating. You know, you look back over your life and you think, oh, for me, she was just really wonderful. I've never forgotten her. Uh, it turns out she wasn't so great. You know, but it's with you. So that's why From the Bell Tolls is probably the one because of the time I read it. That's understandable. What's the best short story Hemingway ever wrote? Oh, I'm going to fail on this one um, because I haven't read enough of them. And I know, and the best is a novella is The Old Man in the Sea. So um, sorry, Mark, I'm going to fail you on that one. No, no, there's no failure. Uh, in your research uh, with the book or in your experience reading Hemingway, is was there a was there something that Hemingway wrote that you felt was underread? underappreciated that you would ask people, even people who might be familiar with Hemingway to go back and take a look at? Yeah. Um, well, uh, one thing no one reads because they, they can't find it, but he wrote a piece for the new masses about the death of all these WPA uh, people in Florida after a hurricane. And you can just tell he's trying to use every little bit of skill he has as a writer to enrage people. That's certainly it. Um, you know, what I find interesting is I, I couldn't read the whole thing. I had to work my way through it because it was a responsibility as a writer writing about the book. But his book about bullfighting, and, and I may have the title somewhat wrong, The De Death in the Afternoon. That's right. There are parts of that that are, that are really well written, but they're so buried in this long <laughs> about writing. Um, uh, he writes a lot about writing and art and Spanish culture, so there's that. But you're um, right, there's a lot about bullfighting. About uh, things that are underappreciated because it's overappreciated. It's movable feast. Um, so many of us have bought the book at JFK Airport, read it on the plane again for the same time, rushed to Paris to have oysters and, um, and you know, it's a. It's a huge bit of fiction, and it's revenge literature, um, and it's 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 Hemingway at its worst in many respects. Um, and so, you ask me the best, I'd say the Movable Feast, the most adored of his books, is really the worst thing. Interesting, done. interesting. Uh, it, it, you're also, as you were writing this book, uh, was there ever, if there was one question that you could ask Hemingway? if you're have, having a beer with him or coffee or he consented to be interviewed, what is the one question that you would ask him? I would ask him to explain his cruelty. Especially you think he could, you think he could do that? I don't know if he could, but it's the one I, I, I you know, I, on a third drink, I'd finally turn to him and say, him, why were you so cruel to so many people? What, what, what was it that got them under your skin? Why, you know, thinking back and he probably, because, you know, you'd become defensive and all that, but that's the thing I just could never understand. I never fully satisfied myself in figuring it out. Um, the one thing that's so clear is that everybody who loved him, he ended up pushing away and, them and, and, and of course, and ultimately killing himself. And it just seems so, so tragic that, uh, that, um, that and I mean tragic in the old sense that tragedies is because of a flaw inside you. Yes. He's such a tragic figure. Yeah. A couple of questions about you as a reader: Is there a work of fiction and nonfiction that changed your life? Oh, lots. Um, 
fiction is uh, John Gunther's, de- uh, well, no, nonfiction, John Gunther's Death Be Not Proud, mm. a book I read when I was 12. Um, that, uh, that is about his, John Gunther was, he wouldn't be upset if I called him a hack writer. He was a travel writer. And if you've ever been to book sales in the old days, there'd be 50 John Gunther books about parts of the world. His son got a brain tumor and he, he wrote a book about it that is just unbelievably moving. Um, and so that'd be nonfiction. Um, you know, fiction in many ways, it's the last book, last few books I've read. I mean, I've, I've read A.S. Byatt's Possession twice and realized how, how a book, a novel like that can just free you from the whole world. Um, and some Mark Twain and a lot of things. It, the real reason, it goes back to that emotional thing that you and I are talking about. It's how you connect and don't want a book to end and, and sure. how it resonates with you as opposed to a specific thing. I didn't seek to become a writer because I'd read a novel about Julian uh, North Nathaniel Hawthorne or something. Um, but it's that emotionality. So, um, so uh, A.S. Byatt's possession is a book I always go back to when I want to read a novel. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sounding really boring. I'm sorry, Mark. No, not in the least. And the, the final question in the questionnaire is, is there a book that you're particularly embarrassed that you've never read? Oh God, lots of books. Um, there's one searching for Corvo, which every biographer is supposed to have read, and I've read parts of it and never sat down to read it. Um, I've tried to read the unabbreviated Don Quixote, loved every moment of it, but became so exhausted that I yeah. never finished the unabridged one. Uh, I tried reading Ulysses and was blown away and thought, my God, I'll never be able to write again. This guy's so good. But did I finish the book? No. Um, the one thing I'm really proud of is, um, uh, two, uh, is, uh, do we have time for a 30 second story? Well, of course. Why not? Um, I was, I had a horrible education. I mean, I went to very good schools, but I was, I was a bad student and hated books and teachers and everything. And I remember being forced to read Dickens and I vowed that if I was ever a dictator, the punishment I'd give to people is force them to read Dickens. Well, as an adult, I suffered loss. I had children. All kinds of things happened. I mean, I picked up Dickens one day, and I realized he got it. I read virtually every book that Dickens has read, if not written, if not twice. Even the Pickwick Papers is a profoundly moving book. And that's because you cannot read literature statically. When you're a kid, my daughter, I read Kaim Potok's um, book, The Promise, as a teenager and was furious at the father for not allowing his son to become a biologist. When my daughter read it in high school and I reread it to you know, give her company, I then became defensive. I kind of got the father's position. So where you are in life matters greatly. And that's why Dickens, to me, if I was on a desert island, would be the books I'd keep with me because he got it. That's fascinating. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast, discussing your book, The Ambulance Driver's. Hemingway Dos Passos and a Friendship Made and Lost in War. We've all learned a lot about the Hemingway Dos Passos quote friendship. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on the Hemingway Society website, HemingwaySociety.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is a production of the Hemingway Foundation and Society and is supported by the University of Evansville and Florida Gulf Coast University.
Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,